Good evening. Winter finally came to El Paso, I guess. We're going to start tonight in Psalm chapter 3. So let's all turn in our Bibles to the book of Psalms. Chapter 3. Kind of looking at the book of Psalms from a top level survey here for a few weeks. Let's pray together. Lord, I want to thank you for your word and how there's treasure in it. There's wisdom in it. There's encouragement in it. And, Father, I pray that we would become skilled in your word. That we'd know where to look. That we'd know how to find your truth. Give us skill tonight, Lord. Speak to us, Lord, tonight. From your word. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So there are 150 Psalms in the book of Psalms, and I mentioned last week how Bible scholars have divided the Psalms up into different kinds of categories and genres. There's a group of Psalms that are called the Wisdom or teaching psalms. We looked at a couple from that category last week. And then there are psalms that are straightforward praise songs. Then there are some psalms that are straightforward thanksgiving psalms. There are psalms that are categorized as royal or uh, messianic. And then you have this really big category over there. A lot of psalms in this genre. And those are the psalms of lament. And I think the color is appropriate. It's the blues, right? These are the psalms written by people who are singing the blues. They're going through very, very difficult times. They're depressed. They're confused. And they pour out their hearts in these psalms. So if you ever find yourself in kind of a downer state, man, you want to find a psalm of lament, read through it, cry through it, pray through it, and God will surely meet you in the midst of that and minister to you. So that's the category we're going to look at tonight. We're going to look at a few of these blues, a few psalms of lament. And Psalm chapter 3 is a psalm of lament written by King David. Now this is a psalm that you would probably want to pull out when you're having people problems. Anybody ever had people problems in here? where you're having an issue with someone, um, where you feel like you're being bullied, where you feel like people have it out for you at work, um, where you're experiencing a lot of stress and anxiety with people, maybe even experiencing a betrayal in your life from somebody close. Look what David says in verse 1. He says, Lord, how they have increased who trouble me. Exclamation point. Many are they who rise up against me. Many are they who say of me, there's no help for him in God. Selah. Now, you notice that word selah. 
It's at the end of verse 2, it's also at the end of verse 4, and it's also at the end of the psalm, verse 8. That is a musical annotation. That tells the musicians to pause, to stop, to rest, stop playing the music. You know, rests in music are just as powerful as sound. And so there's this command there to rest. Now, when you have a psalm with salahs in it, it also lets you readily see the stanzas. There are three stanzas in Psalm 3, marked by that word salah. And this first stanza you would call the stanza of trouble. You can see very obviously that David is experiencing horrific people problems here. There's a group of people who have risen up against him. There's a group of people who are causing trouble. They are challenging David, and he's stressed out by it. You can see that he's under a lot of anxiety. But I also want you to know that when he's writing this, he is brokenhearted. He is sad. Because look at what it says at the heading of the psalm. A psalm of David when he fled from whom? Absalom, his son. So at the end of David's life, he's still king, but his son, Absalom, betrayed him. His own son organized an insurrection against him. Absalom marshaled a whole bunch of troops. They marched into Jerusalem to the palace, and David was forced to flee. Now imagine being betrayed by your own son. Imagine the hurt and the pain. David is crushed when he writes this. He can't sleep at night. He's torn. Ever been there in life? Anybody? Ever had problems with somebody and it causes you such stress and anxiety that you can't even sleep at night? That boss at work, that coworker, that person that you have to see, maybe you've been betrayed by somebody very, very close. That's what David's feeling. That's the stanza of trouble. Next you find the stanza of faith. Verse 3. But you, O Lord, are a shield for me. My glory and the one who lifts up my head. I cried to the Lord with my voice, and he heard me from his holy hill, Selah. So in the midst of all that anxiety, all that heartbreak, David did not run from God. Instead, he ran to God, and he cried out to the Lord. He had a serious time in prayer, and God met him in prayer. And God reminded David of promises that you and I should remember whenever we get in a state like this, whenever we feel harassed, by people. David says, you, O Lord, are a shield for me. Christian, the Lord is your shield. The Lord is that which stands between you and anybody who would want to do you harm, including the devil. If you're a Christian, nobody can get to you. They have to get through God first. And take comfort in that. The Lord is your shield. He says, the Lord is my glory. In other words, the Lord is my sovereign king. He's my majesty. He's my royalty. The Lord is in charge. Christian, the Lord is in charge. Other people don't dictate your life. Who's in charge of your life? The Lord is. Who's in control? The Lord is. 
Don't forget that. David says, you are the one who lifts up my head. You lift up my countenance. I'm looking down. I'm despondent. I'm worried. But I come to you and you give me confidence. You lift up my spirit. You turn to the Lord. And that's what he did by faith. And that leads to the stanza of peace and confidence. Look what he says in verse 5. I lay down and slept. I awoke for the Lord to sustain me. In other words, I had a good night's sleep. Finally, I went to bed. I put this all on the Lord's shoulders, and I had a great night's sleep. Verse 6, I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. He has confidence now. He knows. His perspectives change. God is his shield. I'm not afraid of 10,000 people that would surround me. Verse 7, he says, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. You've struck all my enemies on the cheekbone. You have broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing is upon your people. Say, La. So you see how everything changed? So afraid, so worried, turns to the Lord, remembers the promises, goes forth with confidence. Yeah, God, we got this. We can handle this. And if you know the story, David would be delivered. He would get his kingdom back. Tragically, his son Absalom would be killed in that process. Notice, at the beginning of this psalm, David's eyes are on people. Oh, they're against me. By the end of the psalm, his eyes are on whom? On the Lord. And you notice in every psalm, no matter where you start, you get, you get to God at the end. And that's the key. Brothers and sisters of Christ, a lot of times when you get down in your life, when you're fearful, when you have anxiety in your life, it's because you have your eyes on other people. You're looking at these other people in your life and you're afraid of them or you're, you know, you don't have any confidence. You're intimidated. Oh, the people, look how they treat me. Get your eyes off the people. Put your eyes on the Lord. Go before him. Get your confidence. It's been said that if you will bow before God, then you can stand before any man. You get your confidence from the Lord. Get your eyes off the people. Get them on the Lord. So this is a psalm that you want to pull out when you're in those people problems and you're lamenting. Over things like that. Okay. Turn all the way to Psalm chapter 77. I want you to see another type of psalm of lament. Psalm 77. I want you to go there and read through it with me. This psalm was written by Asaph. And when Asaph wrote this psalm, he was depressed. He was despondent. He was going through a dark, dark night of the soul. We have no idea what this guy is actually going through, but he is as down as down can get. Perhaps it's an illness that he's going through, some kind of broken relationship, something in life, whatever the case, he is utterly depressed here. In verse 1, he says, I cried out to God with my voice, to God with my voice, 
and he gave ear to me. In the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. My hand was stretched out in the night without ceasing. My soul refused to be comforted. I remembered God and was troubled. I complained and my spirit was overwhelmed. Salah. He says, my spirit's overwhelmed. My soul refused to be comforted. And the idea here is that he is a believer. He is reaching out to God. He says, all night on my bed, I stretch out. I'm crying out to the Lord. And yet God isn't responding. Verse 3 says, I remembered God and was still troubled. In other words... I'm speaking out, I'm crying out to God, I'm trying to remember God, but he's distant. I feel alone. I'm still troubled. Now, that happens. I'm just going to be honest with you. That happens to Christians. There are times when Christians go through very, very dark times, very troubling times, and a lot of times they feel that God has abandoned them. Remember Job? Job felt abandoned. Good, godly man. I say that because every now and then a Christian will come to me and say, Terry, I don't feel God anymore. I'm really struggling. I feel like God has left, and it's never happened before. Listen, that can happen. It's not unnormal, you know? It's not like you're the only one that's ever experienced that as a Christian. You can be really down, and part of your depression might be that you don't feel God like you used to. Here's a godly man feeling that way. And you say, well, why would God allow us to go through a season of darkness like that? Well, our faith is not to be dependent upon emotion, is it? It's not to be dependent upon feeling. It's to be dependent upon objective truth. There's times where you've got to cling to it. Notice he continues in verse 4. You hold my eyelids open. <laughs> I'm so troubled I cannot speak. God, I want some sleep and you keep my eyes open. I'm so troubled that I don't even know who to talk to about it anymore. I have considered the days of old, verse 5, the years of ancient times... I call to my remembrance, excuse me, I call to remembrance my song in the night. I meditate within my heart and my spirit makes diligent search. Now, verse 6, very telling. He says, I call to remembrance my song in the night. He's saying this, man, there was a time when I was tight with God. There was a t- I can remember when I was up at night, I was singing. I had a sweet song. The Lord. I remember those times. I felt tight with God, but not now. Verse 7, he says, Will the Lord cast off forever? Will he be favorable no more? Has his mercy ceased forever? Has his promise failed forevermore? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his tender mercy? Salah. Ooh, is that too honest to be spoken out loud? He's literally, God, what's wrong with you? Where are you? Honest, tough, raw, emotional, painful. So you can see this guy is incredibly depressed. And for whatever reason. 
Well, he takes a turn in verse 10. And I want you to see this. Watch what he says. Verse 10, he says, And I said, This is my anguish, but, but, I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. He says, I'm in anguish. I don't understand it. I don't feel close to God. I can't make sense of it. But I'm choosing, I'm choosing to remember the works of my God. And he goes on, verse 11. I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. I will meditate on all your work, talk of all your deeds. Your way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Who is so great a God is our God. You are the God who does wonders. You have declared your strength among the peoples. You have with your arm redeemed your people, the sons of Joseph, Jacob, and Joseph. The waters saw you, O God. The waters saw you, and they were afraid. The depths also trembled. The clouds poured out water. The sky sent out a sound. Your arrows also flashed about. The voice of your thunder was in the whirlwind. The lightnings lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was in the sea, your path in the great waters. And your footsteps were not known. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. So you see what he does. I feel despondent. I'm in anguish. But I am choosing to remember, God, your work in the history of your people. I'm choosing to remember how you redeemed the sons of Jacob and Joseph. And he's thinking back to the Egypt, to the exodus out of Egypt, and how he was delivered his people miraculously. And there he's talking about at the end of the chapter, the crossing of the Red Sea, isn't he? I remember what you've done in history. I remember that you parted the Red Sea. I remember what you have done for our people. And so I'm choosing to believe that you haven't left me. And there's still a future hope. When you get down, when you don't feel it, when you're going through that dark night of the soul, choose to remember what God has done in history. Boy, it's at that time in your life that you should not run from the Bible, you should run to the Bible. Go to your Gospels and read the miracles that Jesus worked. Read of how he died on the cross for your sins and rose again the third day. Read of his ascension. Read of his promise that he'll come back. Read through the book of Acts. Look how he worked in the life of the church. And say to yourself, my God has done great things. And I will trust him right now. And I know that he will do great things for me. Christian, remember what God has done in your personal history. Your personal history. You're feeling bad right now. You're going through it. You know, remember, look back to the day you got saved. Remember it. When Jesus redeemed you, think of how he pulled you out of the world. Saved you. Go back and remember. Think of the times where he has come through for you. He's gotten you out of some tight spaces. Has the Lord helped you through some tight spaces in your life? Has he parted some Red Seas for you? Remember those. Get hope from those. Trust him in the present. Know that this is a season that you will go through. You'll get through it. Hang on to the Lord. Now, I want you to notice something. There's something really, really interesting going on in Psalm 77. In the first 10 verses of the chapter, 
Asaph is morbidly, morbidly introspective. He's utterly consumed with himself. He's completely wrapped up in himself. He's completely consumed with his own pain. His eyes can only see himself. Over 20 times in the first 10 verses, the personal pronouns, I, me, and my, are repeated. It's all over. I, me, my, I hurt, my pain, me, me. There's a few times that he refers to God, but in the opening portion of that psalm, it's I, my, me. He's completely obsessed with his self-pain. In the second half of the psalm, it flips. Only three personal pronouns and over 20 references to whom? To God. So he changes from I, me, my to you, God. You, O Lord. His whole perspective gets moved to God. So, In Psalm 3, you get your eyes on the people. You're depressed. Get your eyes on God. In Psalm 77, if you're depressed, maybe you have too much focus on you yourself personally. You're caught up. You know, and that's easy to understand because when people are hurting, they get caught up. They get so in this box of my own pain My need, my wants, my hurts. That it becomes like a little prison. You have got to turn your attention to God. You have got to focus on the Lord. You've got to get your mind and your obsession off of your own self and get it on the Lord. If you are focused with the Lord, if your eyes are on the Lord, if you are occupied with God, consumed with God, he can get you through anything. Absolutely anything. If you look at Jesus, you can walk on the water. The moment you turn away, what happens? You sink. And the Psalms encourage us to do that. Get your eyes off yourself, man. Get your eyes on the Lord. And he will see you through. Very important psalm. Very honest psalm. There are a lot of psalms just like this one. Pull one of those out. When you're singing the blues. Okay, I want to look at another song of lament, and this is a specific one. This is a song of contrition, of confession, of repentance. This is a psalm that you would pull out when, God forbid, you've failed big time. You've sinned greatly. And you need to come back to the Lord and ask for restoration. Turn just a few chapters to the left, Psalm 51. Famous psalm. Okay, now I want you to look at the heading for this psalm because that tells the Story, the background. What does it say? To the chief musician, a psalm of whom, you with me? David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into whom? Bathsheba. Okay. This is concerning the biggest failure of King David's life. He blew it big time, didn't he? Now you remember the story. 
He's older now, and he's in his palace, and his army's gone out to war. And in a time when kings would go out to war, he stayed home, right? And he's just sort of strolling around his palace, idle, just kind of hanging out, doing nothing. One day he notices a very beautiful young woman bathing down below. Her name's Bathsheba. He inquires. He's filled with lust. He invites her up. He has an affair, has sexual relations with her. And she gets pregnant. Uh Uh-oh. So now David has to cover up the pregnancy. And so you remember, what does he do? He finds out who's Bathsheba's husband's name, Uriah. And he's out to battle. He's with all the other people. They're, they're out fighting while the king's at home. And so he sends uh, word to uh, his general to bring Uriah back to Jerusalem, give him some R&R. You remember this? And uh, Uriah comes home and David says, man, I hope things are good. Hey, listen, I wanted to give you some time. Go, go spend some time with your wife. And, and what's, what's David trying to do? Get Uriah to go in, have relations with his wife, so the pregnancy will be thought to be Uriah's. Well, Uriah doesn't go to his wife, does he? He sleeps out on the porch. And David says, Uriah, what's wrong with you? And this loyal godly, devoted man says, how could I go in to my wife when my fellow soldiers are out there on the battlefield? I will not. I am standing with my brothers in the fight. And David goes, great. And so he tries again. The next night, he has Uriah come to his palace, and King David gets him drunk. Offers some wine to him. We'll loosen them up. We'll get them tipsy. Does just that. Thinks, oh, now he's going to go to his wife. Does he? Nope. He goes out to the porch and he sleeps outside. And so David, (laughs) it won't work. David writes a letter for Uriah to bring along with him when they get back to the battlefield. Uriah has no idea, but he's carrying his own death warrant. David says, make sure Uriah is placed up where the hottest battles are being fought, right there at the very front lines where he will be likely to be killed. Uriah is killed. David marries Bathsheba. Horrific. Horrific. David thinks he gets away with that. For a year he sits on that. For a year he doesn't tell anybody. Although I'm sure there were among the courts. Among people in the courts. But for the most part David thinks that He got away with it. He didn't. God saw, God sent a prophet named Nathan to David. You remember? And Nathan comes to King David and says, there's a rich man and a poor man in a city. The rich man has all kinds of flocks, so many sheep, he doesn't even know what to do with it. The poor man has one little lamb, one little lamb. And... Their families welcome that one little lamb as a pet. It's like it comes inside, they feed it, sleeps with them. It's like a kid. A traveler comes to see the rich man. The rich man wants to feed this guy a really good meal. Instead of taking a lamb from his own flocks, what does he do? He takes the one and only lamb from that poor man, takes it right out of his family, slaughters it. Turns it into the feast. David hears that story. You remember how he reacted? As the Lord lives. 
That man shall surely die. Let's go find him. I'm going to put him to death myself. And remember, Nathan the prophet turns to him and says, You are the man. You are the man, David. You've acted just like that rich man. Crushes him. How ugly this was in David's life. How utterly crushed and broken he was. And that's when he wrote this psalm. Psalm 51. Look at it. Verse 1. Have mercy upon me, O God. According to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. That you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Now you need to understand this is... This is one of the greatest, most heartfelt confessions in all of Scripture. It's real. David admits, he finally comes clean. He says, I have sinned. And he says to the Lord, I've sinned against you. Now he sinned against Bathsheba, Uriah, and a whole bunch of other people too. But listen carefully. When you sin against people, you sin against God. Not only does it hurt people, but it hurts God. And he freely, publicly even, it's believed, confessed his sin. Here is a man who is literally throwing himself at the mercy of God. He's saying, God, have mercy on me. God, have mercy on me. In verse 5, he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin, my mother conceived me. Now, he's not using original sin as an excuse. He's not saying, I was born a normal, warm-blooded man. I was born as a sinner. And I couldn't help it. This is the way I was made. He's not standing behind that argument. He's bringing his confession further. Here he's saying, not only have I sinned grossly in this matter, but my whole nature is sinful. I'm a sinner to the core. Verse 7, he says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean." Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. I mean, here you see the devastating consequences of his sin, that year long where he thinks he's covering it up. He hasn't seen joy or gladness in many days. In fact, he's experiencing Physical health issues. He says his bones hurt. You know, sin will do that to you. It'll zap all the joy and life and spirit, all the health even, out of your life, especially if you're covering it up. Verse 10, he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Now this is, this is so touching. This is why David has been called a man after God's own heart. He is broken over this. And the thing that hurts him the most about it is what it's done between him and God. He says, don't cast me from your presence. He says, don't. Take your Holy Spirit from me. Now remember in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God rested on people for a time. The Spirit of God didn't indwell people permanently. And so David really is 
The Spirit had anointed him to be king. But that Spirit could leave. And he says, don't. Don't take your Spirit from me. Now, in the New Testament, as Christians, if you're a true born-again Christian, this Holy Spirit will never leave you. But you can grieve him. You can quench him. And when you have sin in your life and it's, it, it, it's not dealt with, it just clogs the arteries of spiritual health in you. So he says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Verse 14, very important. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. The God of my salvation and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth shall show forth your praise. You do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. See, he really is broken over this. He is brokenhearted. He's not this person who's going, well, I'll just offer some sacrifices at the temple. I'll just go through the motion and I'll pretend like I'm all, you know, sorry. David says that kind of attitude wouldn't work. The broken heart, the broken heart, the contrite heart, the honest heart, the heart that says, this is me. Forgive me. That heart will not be despised. God forgave David. God purged him. Washed the sins away. David was restored. David and the Lord we're right with each other. This is a psalm that you want to use when you need to confess before the Lord. Now, hopefully nobody here is going to go murder someone and commit adultery like David. But even in the most grievous sins, if you turn back to the Lord, if it's real, there's a shot for you. There's a chance for you. God restored him. Now, some of you are thinking, well, but he sure got away with a lot. I mean, it's like, here's a guy who committed adultery and murdered something, and then he just prayed this little prayer, and all was well. Listen. He was forgiven, he got right with God, but there were serious consequences to that sin that he would live, live, live with for the rest of his life. The child that he was going to have with Bathsheba, what happened to him? Died. David later on would lose three of his sons, including Absalom. His family life was a mess. An utter mess because that sin of lust in his life remember he had trouble with that he had multiple wives multiple concubines multiple children and his whole family life was a wreck he paid the price there are consequences to sin big time but he did come clean here. And he got right with the Lord. And the Lord would walk with him. God is so gracious, isn't he? God is so gracious. So the psalm of contrition. Very, very important psalm. Psalm 32 is just like it. You could turn to Psalm 3. We're not going to do that tonight, but that's also kind of a parallel psalm. There's one more psalm I want to do real quickly. 
And I want to do it because it's a different kind of psalm. The three psalms that we've looked at tonight are personal psalms. They're individual laments. David struggling with people. Uh, a psalmist struggling with depression. David confessing his sin. There are also psalms in the Bible that are national laments. Country laments. These are psalms that you would apply to a nation that's grieving. You would want to you know, say these psalms, you know, wish we could do them at the State of the Union. In our Congress. The Israelites would speak these psalms together when they gathered in the tabernacle in the temple courts. So I want to show you one of those real quick. Turn to Psalm 85. And I'm going to put an American flag up there as we look at Psalm 85. Now, this psalm obviously speaks of Israel, their nation, but I find parallels to our country, our nation as well. Look at verse 1. The psalmist says, Lord, you've been favorable to your land. You've brought back the captivity of Jacob. You have forgiven the iniquity of your people. You have covered all their sin. You have taken away all your wrath. You've turned from the fierceness of your anger. It starts out with thanksgiving. He says, God, you have been so good to our land. You've been so good to our people. And the Lord had been so good to Israel. Redeeming them from Egypt, crossing through the Red Sea, through the wilderness, into the promised land. God gave them so much. And then when they blew it, they were taken captive into Babylon. But after 70 years, they're allowed to come back. And it says, you've been favorable to us. You brought back the captivity of Jacob. Oh, you've given us time after time after chance after chance. And now we're back in the land and you're so good to us. You've been so gracious with us. You've been so wonderful, so good. God has been so good to America, hasn't he? The favor of God has been upon our nation. Like no other nation in history. Think of all the prosperity of this nation. Just think of the abundance of this nation. The economy, the agriculture, the, the medical the technology, all the wealth, the industry, the blessing of God upon this country. Think of the freedom. We get to enjoy freedom in this country. We can meet publicly and study the Bible and pray together. We can say whatever we want. We can gather Not many people throughout all of history have had that freedom. Do you realize that? Do you realize how blessed we are just in the last, what, 240 years? A lot of people have not had freedom. I think we've been blessed with a great military, amen? Ingenuity. Military that has gone out and sacrificed for our freedom. Freedom isn't free, it's paid for. A lot of men and women have given the sacrifice so that we can live in freedom. We're blessed in that we have a Christian heritage. Don't believe the lies. This nation was founded upon Christian principles. The pilgrims were Christians. When they came to this country, they felt like it was the promised land. They came to the promised land to find freedom in the worship of God. Constitution built upon Christian principles. The, Christian, the founders of this country were Christian. The morals of this country were Christian. God was all over our culture. 
I remember when we were watching the Truth Project last summer, it was amazing. They had one of those primers up. This is how you would teach kids the alphabet in one day in the earlier part of this country. By the alphabet, every letter was accompanied with a Bible doctrine. A, Adam, were all fallen in him. Imagine learning your alphabet that way. B, the Bible. C, Christology, the crucifixion of Christ. You go right through the alphabet and it complex doctrines of the Christian faith. We could all say like this psalmist, you have been favorable to our land. And has God, hasn't God blessed us? Okay, look what this guy says. Verse 4, restore us, O God of our salvation, and cause your anger toward us to cease. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your mercy, Lord, and grant us your salvation. So this is weird. At one moment, he's giving thanks, and then in this next stanza, he's praying for revival. What's happened? Israel has forsaken God. They've come back from captivity. God is blessed, shown all this favor. And they turn around and they forget God. And so four times the psalmist says, Restore us. Revive us again. Show us your mercy and grant us your salvation. How terrible. And I would say the same thing has happened in our country. God has been so good to us. And what are we doing? We've pushed him out of our society. Think about it. June 25th, 1962, Angle versus Vitale. The Supreme Court banned prayer in the public schools. And the prayer in question, let me read for you the prayer that caused all of it and caused them to ban. Here's the prayer. Almighty God, we acknowledge our dependence upon thee and we beg thy blessings upon our parents, our teachers, and our country. Amen. Is there something wrong with that prayer? They banned it. They banned public prayer. Now, I don't think you could ever get rid of all prayer in school. If there are tests in school, there will always be prayer, right? You've heard that. You can pray anytime you want as a Christian in any school, but I think that was a symbolic thing. The Supreme Court of our nation said no prayer in our school. And what happened? Well, it got worse. June 17th, 1963, school-sponsored Bible reading in public schools in the United States was declared to be unconstitutional. No more public reading of the Scripture. And, of course, that threw all of the Christian doctrines out. Remember, no more Christmas, no nativity sets, nothing Christian in the public schools. And that has continued and gotten worse. By the way, don't you seem, feel odd that Islam can, you can say whatever you want about Islam in the public schools. Hey, talk about it. Teach the kids Muslim. Don't touch that. Don't rock that boat. But you can't teach the Christian faith. Eventually, the Ten Commandments were removed from courthouses. Yeah, those Ten Commandments. They're dangerous. Do not kill. Do not lie. Do not steal. Do not commit adultery. You need to keep those out of the courtrooms. January 22nd, 1973, Roe versus Wade legalizing abortion. And on and on and on. And it has gotten worse and worse and worse. We have pushed God out of this society. And look what we have reaped. And God's saying to his people in this chapter, you better get back. 
And I think we're reaping a lot of judgment right now. Look how divided we are. Have you ever seen the political environment like this? How crazy it is in our country. How godless it's become. How immorality is all over the place. The psalmist says in verse 8, I will hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people and to his saints. Surely, verse 9, his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. The psalmist says, you know what we need to do? We need to hear from the Lord again, and we need to fear his name. We need God's truth to become the law of the land again, and we need to fear God's name. Verse 10, if you do that, mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. I like that. Truth shall spring out of the earth, and righteousness shall look down from heaven. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him, and shall make his footsteps our pathway. Always, there's hope. God says, just return to me. Return to me. Let me back in. That's all we need. If that's all we did as a nation. And by the way, the, the, the burden rests upon us as the church. Did you know that? It's the church. It says in the Chronicles, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek me, and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear their prayer. And forgive their sin. And heal their land. Hmm. So this would be. A psalm that you would apply to. A nation. By the way this is a psalm. That I pull out every year around July 4th. And I go through this psalm. And I think through it. And there are other psalms just like. So, psalms of lament. Lots of them. And I believe there are lots of them for a reason. Because we all get the blues. We all get them. And you know what? Trouble is a big part of life. Even if you are a Christian, you will experience pain and suffering. And I am so glad that these psalms are in there. Now, there are Christians out there that will say, if you're really following the Lord and you have faith, you'll never have any problems. They live in a dream world. These guys, I mean, David didn't have any faith. Asaph didn't have any faith. Some of these great men of God. No, I'm glad they're in there. And I want you to know tonight, God will meet you there. God will meet you in the darkest moment of your life. We have a God who's there for us. He saves us. He loves us. We live in a fallen world. There's trouble. Sometimes we blow it and make mistakes and bring a lot of trouble on ourselves even as Christians, but he is there for you. He will walk through this life with you and eventually we'll get to the other side where there'll be no more blues, no more blue dots in heaven, right? Let's thank him for that. Would you bow your heads with me and close your eyes? Lord, it's good to see honesty in your word. (laughs) Lord, we are actually comforted to know that there were great men and women who have gone before us who have struggled. And it's so wonderful to know, Lord, that you meet us there. Father, I do pray as your people, though, that we would be able to keep our focus upon you. Lord, if only we could keep our eyes on you. 
and, and stay fixed upon you. So that the people that hassle us wouldn't, wouldn't bug us, it wouldn't get under our, our skin as much. We wouldn't be anxious about such things. Lord, protect us from becoming so self-preoccupied. So wound up tight. So caught up in our own little world. Help us to keep our eyes upon you. It's a bigger, brighter world when our eyes are on you. So much more possibility. Lord, I pray for anyone here tonight who is going through a very difficult time. I pray that your word would comfort Lord. Pray that we would hang on to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand. We'll close with a word of prayer. Not a word of prayer. We'll close with a song.